How's everybody doing today? Good. Like I said before, I really missed you guys last week. Um, uh, before I begin the official sermon uh, of other stuff to talk about, I just wanted to share this picture that I got yesterday. Um, so I made the trek out to Cottage Grove uh, to go see the Vikings uh, fight tooth and nail for their victory against the South Umqua High School. Uh, they did a great job. Um, Reese was, he was a champ. I mean, he just, uh, there was a point where game's going and I realized I don't see Reese out there and he was, you know, icing like a, a sprain or something on his leg and I thought, oh, crud on his championship game. This is terrible. Well, so he, he got back out, and I mean, he was limping the whole time each time he got put out again, but um, he just kept going. And I was reminded, so there was this point in the game, fourth quarter, and I mean, these teams were, they were head-on. Best Sayusla game I've seen yet. And there was this point where I think we had gotten an interception, but, or maybe the guy, he got it. I can't remember the exact details. But this one guy from our team got creamed. And he was, lay, he was laying on the field, and everything stopped. And the picture I got, so we were the fans. We were in the stands. I mean, we were hooping. We were hollering. We were saying, yeah, each time. Because we were the team that actually got touchdowns. It was amazing. Um, the other team, they got in it with some field goals, and they were, they were neck and neck with us. But the amazing thing to me, the picture I got, so we were in the stands, and everyone was quiet. And everyone was waiting to see, is this kid going to be okay? Is it going to be one of those situations where you have a tragic injury and it's going to take him out? And the picture I got was from uh, uh, the letter to the Hebrews uh, in the New Testament where it talks about, since we've been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race that's set before us. And the picture I got was how... It, you know, that's a really great line and a great passage, but then the picture got darker where it's like, what about the times when we fall? And we have the great cloud of witnesses who are cheering us on saying, yeah, go, you're doing so good. And then the enemy takes us out at the knees and we're on the floor. And then I got this picture as though all of heaven stops and waits to see if we're going to get back up again. Are we going to recover? Are we going to do as it talks about in Proverbs where though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up again? And then, so uh, if you haven't seen the game on, on the, the highlights or anything, the kid got up. He's okay. He, he was walking, so I don't know if he got a concussion or what, but uh, he's okay. He's doing good. Um, and the game continued. But it just gave me this picture where we all, on our journey of faith, we are running a race, whether we like it or not. Uh, God's set us on this track, 
And we are surrounded by all the saints who have come before us and all the saints who have ever been um, or never will be. And they are cheering us on, saying, yeah, you got this. But I would say that God's heart is that you would be encouraged this morning, that wherever you're at, no matter how many times you've fallen, um, God's heart is for you to get back up again. So, um, that leads me into today a little bit, because we're talking about hope. We lit the candle, it's official. Um, The title for today's message is God Gives Hope. God gives hope. Our main passage is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. Um, And we're going to be talking about today how when the Savior comes, we will experience the triumph of His grace. When the Savior comes, we will experience the triumph of His grace. This morning, we're kicking off a brand new series titled, In the Waiting. And we're going to be talking about and exploring how God meets us throughout the season of Advent as we wait for Christmas to come in the waiting. One thing I look forward to every single year is the invitation that this season gives us because it's the opportunity for us to experience again and again and remember with childlike wonder the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God. There's this prayer by St. Augustine. I've quoted it before, and it's worth quoting again. You guys will probably get tired of it someday, but here we go. Uh, The the prayer goes like this. Uh, St. Augustine said, Everlasting God in whom we live and move and have our being, you have made us for yourself so that our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Throughout Advent, in the waiting, we prepare our hearts to receive the Savior of the world in our lives today. So I don't know about you or where you're at today, but I am excited for all that God is going to do in and through you and me and our church family this Advent season. Ready or not, here we go. In the waiting, God gives hope. So a show of hands, how many of you went out Black Friday shopping? None of you. Wow. Have you ever been Black Friday shopping, though? Show, okay, here we go. So you can relate a little bit. Uh, how many of you tried to avoid Black Friday shopping? All hands are in the air. Um, now, the way I see it, Black Friday starts with all the ads that are leading up to Thanksgiving on all the media fronts, whether you listen to the radio, you watch TV, or you listen to Spotify like I do, and you haven't paid the premium price yet, so you still have those ads, or, uh, or any host of social media feeds, or maybe it's the tried and true newspaper on Thanksgiving. We are inundated by the noise of these businesses trying to get us to buy their stuff because we think that it's going to give us or our loved ones some warm, fuzzy feelings at Christmas time. 
Now, I am all for gifts, and I'm all for a good bargain. And there have been times where Angie and I, we've braved the crowds. Uh, we've gotten up super early. That was not this year. Um, but every year that we've done so, I'm reminded of the overwhelming feeling of hurry and stress and anxiety that that day causes. Even for Angie and I this year, we were, that was the day we were leaving for home, to come home. We were leaving Portland. We had to pick up Angie's grandma who was visiting someone. Um, and we, we had still that anxiousness and that hurry of like, got to get home. <laughs> I was that way because I was like, man, I've been gone way too long. I want to be home. And, you know, and so on this day of anxiety and hurry, we do it all, and then at the end of the day, chances are we're worn out, and we sit down, we turn on more noise from media trying to unwind from the day, and then the cycle just kind of continues from there. Winston Churchill once said, you can measure a man's character by the choices he makes under pressure. You can measure a man's character by the choices he makes under pressure. Now, you may disagree with that statement, or you might be, preach it, Winston. Here we go. Um, but for just a moment, <clears throat> think about it. If what Winston Churchill said was true, even part of the time, could we say that about moments like Black Friday? Or maybe your anxious moment was Thanksgiving. <laughs> and, you know, the preparation for the meal and all of that. Maybe there's something deeper going on when we see the frenzy and the crazy of humanity grasping at all manner of stuff in a desperate effort to have a good holiday or have a good Christmas. Maybe we could rephrase Winston Churchill's quote by saying, you can measure the state of a person's soul by the choices they make under pressure the state of our souls, the symptoms that we see all around us um, are restlessness, stress, exhaustion, and weariness. I would even be willing to bet, even in retirement communities, y'all, there's some of that going on. So what can be done? What's the remedy for these conditions? I believe that it's the hope that God offers us through Jesus Christ. Now, there are probably more ways of how Jesus ministers that hope in our lives than there are people in this room today. Clearly, because each and every one of you have experienced that hope in one fashion or another, and we all have our story, and it all looks different. There might be some common elements, but we've all experienced that hope, or we've heard about that hope. <clears throat> so in the waiting, the good news is that Jesus meets us right where we're at, and he offers us his grace. Now, to jump right in to the context of our passage, because we're going to be hanging out in the book of Isaiah throughout Advent. <clears throat> um, the book of Isaiah was written by the prophet Isaiah. 
during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. If you were to look at a timeline of where certain portions of the book were written, you would find that chapter 9 takes place in the middle of a national conflict between the kingdom of Judah, Syria, and the northern kingdom of Israel in about 735 BC. At that time, the nation was led by King Ahaz, who the Bible describes as doing what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, no bueno. You can read more about it in 2 Kings chapter 16, but suffice to say, this was not Judah's finest hour. They were steeped in their rebellion, idol worship, like the northern kingdom of Israel. They were weary from war. They had a wicked king who did not lead like King David did. And we begin chapter 9 on the heels of God speaking out a judgment against his people's idolatry and covenant breaking. Isaiah is speaking to a restless and weary people who need some hope. They need to hear about the good that God has in store for them. They need a Savior who would come and set everything to right and lead them in the way of God. The state of the kingdom of Judah reminds me a lot of how we might find things in the state of America today. Rebellion, idolatry, brokenness, weariness, corrupt leadership on all levels of government, weary of war and conflict, and in desperate need of the hope that only God can give. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. You'll find it on page 1072 in the Pew Bible in front of you there, if you're, if you're interested. Um, and I'll pick up in verse 2. All right, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given to us by the prophet Isaiah. And there are at least three markers of hope that 
God gives us here in Isaiah chapter 9. The first is that God will start a sweeping change for good. God will start a sweeping change for good. Scripture reveals to us that God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. That comes from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And we find in God's message through the prophet Isaiah this picture of light appearing in darkness. This is the same word picture that we see in the first few verses in Genesis when God spoke into the formless darkness of earth saying, let there be light, and there was, and he called it good. There is a distinct difference between light and darkness. And this contrast is something that's woven into the very fabric of our existence. Light is not darkness, just as darkness ought not to be confused with the light. In any place that is truly dark, as soon as light enters the space, an immediate instantaneous change occurs. That space, no matter how dark it may be, cannot operate the same as long as the light is there. Light brings clarity and truth. Light brings understanding. Light is an ancient agent of change. Light helps us see clearly so we can live accordingly. Isaiah was speaking to a people who had grown accustomed to walking and living in darkness. The literal picture would be people who were so compromised in their sight and actions that they were used to being in darkness. Kind of like if you were to be in your house and all the lights are off and you're trying to feel your way around, which is dangerous in some houses because there's some stuff piled up. You all know what I'm talking about and you've been there at some point. Now, uh, the literal picture, uh, but since this is figurative language, what is the darkness that Isaiah is talking about? The prophet is describing the spiritual condition that the people had with the picture of being impaired by the darkness that characterized their situation. Specifically there, rebellion, idolatry, and the effects of depravity. These were people who were not living in right relationship with God, and they desperately needed something to change. One of Angie's favorite things to do is watch Hallmark Christmas movies. Really, all Hallmark movies fit the bill. And if you ever see her just like mesmerized on her phone, chances are she's either administrating something or watching Hallmark. But anyway, I digress. If, uh, if I could just level with y'all, though, I'm pretty convinced that there are at least five, maybe up to ten different plot lines that they were just recycle over and over and over again. There's been a few more in, in the wake of the pandemic and everything that have come up, and I'm like, ooh, that's interesting. But, I mean, but that's it, like five or ten lines. And they... Uh, they just recycle it with different people, different names, different settings. But when it comes to all these Hallmark Christmas movies, there's always this one pivotal moment that's part of every single one. And it's this community tree lighting moment. The story goes along, 
plot is rising, tensions rising, tensions happening, conversations are going on, and it reaches this point when they're, they're all in the midst of the turmoil, and then suddenly the tree lights go on. And somehow, every time, Hallmark is able to capture this breathtaking, heartwarming moment when the characters experience light appearing in their lives, almost like a light bulb coming on over their head. Uh, and it's almost like those characters start to see things clearer and ultimately have a change of heart that reforms and reshapes their life to be better than it was before that moment, all because of the glow of a Christmas tree. And we, the audience, we say, oh, that's so sweet. I want a holiday like that. Honey, why don't we have holidays like that? Because they were people walking in darkness. Because we are a people who live in darkness. We are a people who need someone to bring us light. And cause the spiritual darkness to be illuminated and for our environment to be revealed and reformed into the goodness that God always intended for us in the beginning. This is the hope of the promised Savior, the Messiah who is going to bring God's people and the world into his good kingdom. When God's light shines, its influence spreads and brings far-reaching change for his glory in our good. So why is God telling us about this light that shines in the darkness? I believe it's because he's gracious towards us when we don't deserve it. Even when we are walking in all manner of rebellion and brokenness and addiction or fill-in-the-blank sin that you have, when you're in that place, God speaks in God's light wants to shine. God wanted to shine his light in the darkness back then, and he still wants to today. Because just as his light would triumph over darkness, his grace triumphs over our sin. He didn't have to do it, but it was his passion and his will to do so. Because when the Savior comes, we will experience the triumph of his grace, and through him, God will start a sweeping change for good. The next marker of hope that God gives us is that God will restore us to life. God will restore us to life. As this prophecy unfolds, Isaiah describes the impact that the Savior's presence was going to have on God's people. He said, you, meaning the Messiah, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. In Hebrew, the word for enlarged literally means to multiply or increase in number so that what once was few has now increased and multiplied to many or much. And an action like this would look like a physical, tangible increase that we could see beyond all doubt that it was greater than it was before. If we were to see results like these, in most areas of life, we would naturally make the word association that, in, that that increase equals blessing, which is typically the reason why people brave the crowds on Black Friday 
or go shopping in general for Christmas so that they can get a large amount of stuff that their loved ones want so that on Christmas morning when it comes to opening all the presents, they see an enlarged pile of presents for the whole family to open, giving us the feeling of blessing. Now, whether it's a good or bad way of looking at it, we naturally associate more with being better and therefore equaling blessing. Just like for me, having one guitar is good. Two is even better. But when I look at the collections of all my favorite guitar players, I think, wow, they are living the good life. <laughs> now they aren't, but, but they have a lot of guitars and I love that. Um, you have your things, so don't judge me. <laughs> but I digress. Now, compare this idea with uh, this idea of multiplication with the word for increase. So we had enlarged, now we have increase. That's also found in verse 3. The old King James uh, renders that word as magnify. And it means to make great, to exhibit fullness and strength, to grow. Uh, we use a magnifying glass typically to make an object appear larger, even if it's not actually larger, but we make it magnified. When we go to a concert, if we're blown away by the performance and the theatrics of it all, we might say, wow, that was magnificent kind of like the Sayusla game yesterday. When we measure the size and power of an earthquake, we use a Richter scale to measure the magnitude of that event. Magnify. It's a word that describes the greatness of a thing. In the prophecy that Isaiah records here, he's referring to a magnified joy. And we'll be talking more about joy next time. But you might be thinking, okay, Tim, that's really Great. So what? Why go into all this detail over two little words that describe big things? Thank you for asking. What I find so compelling about these words is that the same word that's used for multiplication of the nation of Judah, that enlarged, is the exact same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 when God is giving humanity the mandate to be fruitful and to multiply. The same word that's used for that increase of joy is also used when God is talking to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abraham and says that he will make Abraham's name great, that is magnified, and that Abraham would then be a blessing. And these connections make me wonder, if the ideas in these words are meant to help the people of Judah and you and me today remember how God meant for us to live. That we were meant to live as people made in the image of God, being fruitful, multiplying, ruling, and reigning with God on the earth. That this would give us purpose and meaning and increase our joy to the point of overflowing. And that then we would be a blessing to those around us. Not only that, but as Isaiah continues with his description of the Savior's impact, that the people would experience freedom from bondage, oppression, and war. 
And if we were to sum it all up, God meant for us to have life and life to the full. And the mission of Jesus was supposed to carry out that restoration to take us back to the way it was in the beginning when we were free, when we were growing, thriving people of God meant to be a blessing. Amen. When I think of the scene, that kind of scene, that increase, that multiplication, I think of the joyful celebration that happened many, many years ago where we see the photos of the homecoming parade in New York City of the troops coming back from World War II. Having defeated the enemy, walking around victorious and free in a world that at that time was at peace. But unlike the history that's unfolded since that parade, the hope that God was promising to the people of Judah was to be an everlasting victory. That means it doesn't end. This was going to be a victory that ultimately would be fulfilled in Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Because when the Savior comes, we will experience the triumph of his grace. And since he has already come in the God-man, Jesus Christ, the result is that God will restore us to life, setting all things to right. Amen? All right, the third marker of hope that we find in Isaiah 9 is this. God will build his everlasting kingdom. God will build his everlasting kingdom. In verse 6, it's kind of, we're, we're finally told who the great light shining in the darkness is. We're finally given the names and the titles of that individual who would deliver God's people out of bondage and into the good life that God had in store for them. Isaiah wrote, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Let's unpack these names for a moment. A child is born, a son is given. That phrase speaks to the divine gift of grace that the Savior was going to be. We hear this echoed in the Gospel of John uh, that Jim mentioned earlier from John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. The Savior that Isaiah is describing would not be the one that arrived through a human work. Instead, he would be a gift from God to a lost and restless world. So the four names given to this child reveal the totality of this child's power as king. As a wonderful counselor, he is the embodiment of wisdom. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians saying that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As mighty God, this was a title in Scripture that uniquely belonged to the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, and it also belongs to this child, mighty God, which is to say that 
as it also says in Colossians 2 verse 9, in Christ all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. And so Isaiah is forecasting this mysterious truth of the incarnation that the Messiah would be both fully man and fully God, inseparable, as everlasting father. This gives us the picture of an ideal king who would both provide for his people and protect them forever, much like a traditional father would. And as our prince of peace, he would be a source of peace. But more than just an absence of conflict, the Old Testament idea of peace uh, is found in the Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness and completeness. God originally created us to live in shalom with him in the garden, perfect, whole, and complete. And all four of these names point us to the coming Messiah who would establish and build God's kingdom here on earth. And unlike it was in the kingdom of Judah during Isaiah's lifetime or the nation of America that we are fortunate to call home during our lifetime, the kingdom of God that the Savior birthed some 2,000 years ago is one where God is king and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that God's way, his perfect justice and righteousness are established and upheld. As people who embrace this hope, this Messiah, this Savior King, we come under his rule and reign, and by his grace and by the Holy Spirit, we allow him to establish his kingdom in our hearts. Which leads us to the truth that when the Savior comes, we will experience the triumph of his grace. Through Advent, we remember the time when Jesus Christ was born and became the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies foretelling this time when God would send a Savior to save his people. God will build his everlasting kingdom, and it will completely set things back to the way they were supposed to be in the beginning. With God as our king and we as his people, experiencing and sharing the blessing of his grace with the world. As it does every year, we are invited through Advent to encounter him and receive him once again in the waiting when all seems lost and all seems hopeless. God wants to meet with you today. Because God has made you for himself. So that your heart is restless until you rest in him. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the season of Advent. And I thank you, God, for the ways that we get to experience your hope fresh today. Lord, that no matter how far we've gone, Lord, no matter how much we've acted a fool or how hopeless we may seem, Lord, you want to give us hope. 
I thank you for this prophecy in Isaiah. And Lord, that you desired to make a way where there was no way for us to experience the blessing of your grace. So as we think about all this, God, I want to praise you for your faithfulness to us. That in the times when we are faithless, God, you always prove faithful. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.